0: Open your Bibles, please, to Acts chapter 22. I'm going to make a somewhat general statement, but I believe that this is true. Um, It's not a profound statement, so I don't know that it's going to make any difference if you would not be able to identify with this, but I would suspect you will be able to. From time to time, I believe that every believer in Jesus Christ is given a golden opportunity to share the gospel of Christ with a person who does not know the Savior. And I would suspect that oftentimes each believer goes through the door and takes the opportunity to present Christ and to tell others about the Savior, but I would also believe this that there are times in which we don't go through that door. We don't strike while the iron's hot. And we miss an opportunity to share Christ and to tell others how they can come to know the Savior. And when that moment is passed and and it's gone, probably we face ourselves with some regret. We, We look at how we dropped the ball and how we failed to do what we know the Lord wants us to do. And so we, we have a sense of regret. We have a sense of guilt. Uh, there, there's a sense in which we feel like, well, that was a wonderful opportunity and now it's gone. I may never have that opportunity again. I don't know why we miss those opportunities, but we do. And so when we turn to the Scriptures, what we find is every time we are opening the word, is help. There's help here that helps us understand, helps us know how we can be prepared for those moments. And I would suspect, as much as I believe some of us have missed those, I believe that most of us, if not all of us, would love to be able to say Whenever that opportunity comes my way, I'm ready for it. I'm ready to present Christ to the lost. I have the, the knowledge, I have the mental attitude, I have the outlook, I have all my ducks in a row. So when the time comes and the opportunity's there, I go through the door and I take that opportunity to present Christ. Now, I may not be able to lead that person to the Savior, but I'll take the opportunity to give them the information they need. How do you get to that place? Well, you take Evangelism Explosion at Coral Ridge. That's good. That would be a good thing for all of us to do. There are online programs that help us understand how to be well prepared. There are courses that people can take. There are training sessions that that churches offer where people can learn how to be prepared to share the gospel of Christ when that opportunity presents itself. And I believe all of those things have grown out of what the Word of God itself teaches us on how to be prepared for such an occasion. Here in Acts chapter 22, let me kind of rehearse a little bit of the background of what, what has been going on. Do you remember the Apostle Paul has come to Jerusalem? He has been there for... The, the day of Pentecost, the, the celebration of that day is now coming to a conclusion and Paul is there to bring help to the to the believers in Jerusalem because they were going through a terrible, terribly difficult time. He was there to encourage them. He was there to teach. He was there to do a whole variety of different things. And he had with him an entourage of individuals who had come from Macedonia, from Greece, and from other areas like that to help bring this aid that was coming to the believers in Jerusalem. There were those Jewish people who had not accepted Christ as Savior, who had come from some of those areas where the Apostle Paul had been earlier, and they were now making their way into Jerusalem, and they saw Paul, and they know what he did as far as telling others about Christ and telling them that Jesus is the only hope for forgiveness and for eternal life. And when they saw saw Paul, they realized that his commitment to Christ had made him an enemy of the things that they believed. And so they, they made false accusations and they said he has brought a Gentile into the, the temple area. And now they've stirred up the crowd and they've dragged him outside. And the Bible tells us that their intent was to kill him. And they are in the process of beating him. When word gets to the Romans who are in the Tower of Antonia, which is very close to the temple area, several hundred Roman soldiers are dispatched to find out what all this ruckus is that's going on just outside of the temple area. When they arrive, they see Paul being beaten, and the crowd is trying to end his life. They step in, they rescue him, they pull him away, and in the process of taking him away, he turns and asks if he could address the crowd. And when we come to chapter 22, we move now into this address that he makes. So if you'll stay with me for, for reading a a rather long portion here, and and I want to, I want to set your minds at ease right now. We are not going to finish our study in this section today. See, you all believe I am taken by surprise when that happens. But I know we are not going to get it all done today. So if you're a guest here from out of town, extend your stay, make new reservations, you can come back. Uh, no, actually, if, if you do want to hear, you can you can pick it up online and um, you, you can get it from our website. But anyway, I want to tell you that ahead of time because I really don't want you to be distracted by what is about to unfold. Here, Paul is turning to this crowd, and he says this, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense before you now. And when they heard that he spoke to them in the Hebrew language, they kept all the more silent. Then he said, I am indeed a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel now that man Gamaliel was the leading rabbi of the day he was the guy along with another fellow by the name of Hillel who were the two most profoundly respected rabbis uh, among the Jews for many many years even to this day their their writings are studied and Paul sat at the feet of the one of the greatest of all Jewish teachers of all time, that apart from the Savior. And so he's giving them the background of, of where he has come from. He says, I was taught according to the strictness of our Father's law and was zealous towards God as you all are today. Now, there's a little shift that's going on here. He's saying, do you all get this? I used to be where you are. I wanted to kill the people who were followers of the way. I wanted to put to death those who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. So I know all about this. I was where you are. I persecuted this way to the death. Binding and delivering into prison both men and women as also the high priest bears me witness and all the council of the elders from whom I also received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus to bring in chains even those who were there to Jerusalem to be punished. Now it happened as I journeyed and came near Damascus at about noon suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me and now Paul is about to give his personal Testimony, And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me indeed saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. So I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all things which are appointed for you to do. And since I could not see for the glory of that light, being led by the hand of those who were with me, I came into Damascus. Then a certain Ananias a devout man, according to the law, having a good testimony with all the Jews who dwelt there, came to me and he stood and said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that same hour I looked up at him. Then he said, The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth, for you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, that I was in a trance, and saw Him saying to me, Make haste, And get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I was—I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you far from here to the Gentiles. Oh, boy. That was it. Look at the next verse. And they listened to him until this word, and then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Why? The only thing that he said that really set them off was that he was going to carry the message of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. We don't have any idea today at how much the Jews hated the Gentiles. And that was a designed, not a designed, it was a developed belief because the Jews, having been chosen by God, did not accept the message that God gave to them appropriately. They took the message of being a chosen people and they became engulfed with their own pride. And then they looked at themselves as if they were something special and the Gentiles were just a bunch of, and this is the word they used to describe them, dogs. And so now that this message of forgiveness and hope and life is going to go to the Gentiles, uh, now the people want him dead. Uh, he's not fit to live any longer. Well, that's going to lead us into another part of understanding of what's going on in this this uh, series of events that ultimately will bring Paul to Rome. But I want to look at what preceded that. And next week we'll, we'll talk some more about that other element. What preceded this was a pattern. It was an instruction. It was a direction that Paul went that I believe he is saying to us, follow me. Come this way. You want to be prepared to tell others about Christ. This is the way you do it. Do you all are are you grasping what's happening here? He has just been beaten up. He is facing a crowd that wants him dead. He has been rescued by the representatives of the government. The Romans are leading him away and he makes a request. And what's his request? He wants to turn to those people who are just trying to kill him and tell them how they could be forgiven of their sins and be granted the gift of eternal life. You and I have trouble sometimes telling people that are our friends about Christ. People that care about us and that we care about. Let alone a mob of individuals who want us dead. And he says, here's here's how you prepare. Do you want to be prepared to tell others about Christ? Follow Paul's pattern. The first thing you need is a heart filled with love. This does not come easily. I've really had to challenge my own heart. And I've I've made reference to this on a number of occasions. But I have trouble with the way people behave on the road. (laughs) And I know I've told you about this. And quite frankly, I really get angry at folks on the road. And I yell at them. Mostly with the windows up. I keep the air conditioning on. And I'm yelling out, You idiot! You jerk! How could you be so safe? If you can't drive the thing, just leave it at home! And then I feel a whole lot better. But quite frankly, I don't. Do you know, here is what I've been challenging myself with lately. And to be honest with you, it's because I've been preparing this message. And to prepare a message, you've got to look at yourself first. You all know that the message is always bigger than the messenger, right? If you're looking at me for perfection, forget it. It is not going to happen. But I will tell you this, by the grace of God, I am trying to deal with this issue. And here's the way I try to deal with it. I say, with the attitude you have right now, could you tell them about Jesus Christ? Now it's not a matter of what they did. It's a matter of how I responded. Could you imagine Paul looking at this crowd? (laughs) This is not just a person who waits five seconds before they start at a green light. This isn't about the person who's driving in the left lane doing 35 in a 45 zone. This isn't about, well, I could go on and on. But that just feeds my anger. Um, this is a man looking at a crowd that wanted to kill him. And I really believe that the issue was not even related one iota to what they had done. It was all centered upon what Paul had become. He had become a lover. First, he loved the Savior. And that was above everything else. He loved Jesus Christ. Why did he love Christ? Well, in his testimony, he gives a pretty good and pretty clear example of what kind of life he had lived before that day. He would travel from city to city as a representative of the leaders of the temple in Jerusalem, he would go with letters that were signed by the priest, the high priest in Jerusalem, that gave him the freedom and the permission to hunt down Christians, to chain them up, and to drag them back to Jerusalem for trial, and possibly, if not to be incarcerated for a long period of time, to ultimately be put to death. And he was there, as he said, he was there when Stephen was stoned and killed. So there's blood on his hands. And he was a man who, in the religious sense, was doing everything that you would think a person could do to make God happy with him. Does God want me to do this? And in his warped way of thinking, if God wanted the Jews to be protected from the influx of a new cult that has arisen, that's identified as the way that later becomes the church of christ they they he he looks at that and he says if i destroy that that must be something that god will be very happy with and and who knows what else was going through his mind but that's what we can evaluate we can look at that and say that's what he did and he's thinking now he's pleasing God. Just like people today think, well, if I go to church, then God is pleased. If I get baptized, then God is pleased. If I give money to the church, then God is pleased. If I treat my neighbor nicely, then God is pleased. If I read the Bible, then God is pleased. And if I pray, then God is pleased. And what they don't understand is God is as pleased with that as he was with Paul, in or Saul at the time before his name was changed. God is as pleased with that individual as he was with Saul when Saul was persecuting the Christians. That doesn't make sense. He, he was living on a completely different plane. I don't do that sort of thing, no. And I can tell you this, you and I cannot do anything that pleases God apart from accepting Jesus Christ as our Savior. He tells us that. All of our good works are as filthy rags. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who doeth good. Why? Because all of the efforts we make within ourselves are done in the realm of our own efforts which are tainted in every fashion by the sin that dwells within us. So that everything we do is still under the canopy of sin. What can change that? It is the love of Jesus Christ that took Him to the cross to be our Redeemer, to pay by the shedding of His blood and giving up His life and being buried and rising again from the dead so that by faith We believe what Christ did for us and we believe what the Father said He did for us and we say, He redeemed me. He bought me out of the slave market of sin. He freely has forgiven my sins and He has given me life because I have trusted in Him. Can you love somebody that does that for you? Paul did. I think Paul had a real clear picture of the direction he was heading apart from Christ, even though for a time he thought it was the right way to go. What does the Bible say? That people have a tendency to believe that the things they're doing are good, but the end thereof are the ways of death. But the way of the cross brings life. So that when we give up all of our own efforts and we turn in faith and we receive Christ as our Savior, we recognize that He gave His body as a sacrifice to pay the penalty of our sin. He died to fulfill the requirement of a holy God that says sin brings forth death. And death occurred when He shed His blood and gave up His spirit and finished the work of sacrifice that had to be made for us to be forgiven and for us to have eternal life. And we look and we say, yes, it is only Jesus in whom I can find life. It is only in Him that I can find forgiveness. And so I look to Him and I see His love that redeemed me. And I think that's where the heart of love begins. I say begins because it is easy to lose a sense of that love unless the Spirit of God is in control. And the Spirit of God does something that you and I cannot work up on our own as much as we want to. I want to love that lousy driver. But I really can't. Quite honestly, I would love to run them off the road. I want a car that has one of those long poles that sticks out the front so that I can drive up behind them, puncture their gas tank, back away, watch all the gas come out, and when they slow down and stop, just wave as I go by. And some of you would like to buy that car from me when I'm done with it. Seeing some of you shake your heads, yes. That is not love. (laughs) But the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so we have a resource that brings the same degree of love into our hearts that was brought into the heart of this man Paul as he is facing this crowd. And he's, and he's looking at this crowd and he says, Not only have I been redeemed, but the one who loved me will never fail me. The one who loved me is with me at this moment. That moment that the iron is hot. I can strike right now. I can tell these people about Christ. And every promise he has made is true. Every single promise. He promises to be with me, never to leave me nor forsake me. He promises to give me grace as each day comes its way. He promises that He will give me direction under His Holy Spirit. He promises that He is my advocate with the Father, that even if I do mess up and I do things that are wrong, He is an attorney who never loses a case. And He looks and He says, Paul looks and says, this is the Jesus that I love. This is the Jesus whom I serve. This is the Jesus whom I remember. If you're ever going to love the lost, it begins with your love for Jesus Christ. And that love for Christ begins with a clear understanding of what it is He did for us at the cross of Calvary. I cannot think of a better time than this moment to gather around the elements of the Lord's table and say, I do this in remembrance of Him. Gentlemen that serve... I know that this is not tradition, but I think this is when we should remember the Lord. Come on down. The fellows that are going to serve, just make your way down and uh, have a seat here. While they are coming, if you're a guest here today, it might be that you're unfamiliar with what we're about to do. And let me tell you, it's nothing strange. It is something that is very meaningful. And I hope it's something that you perhaps would understand maybe as never before. The Lord instructed the church to observe what is called the Lord's table. And we're to do this in such a way that we remember Him. And in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he gave us some very clear instruction about this. And and basically, here's what he said. When you come together, you partake of these elements first of the bread that is a representation of the body of Jesus Christ and there's really two ways to look at that the body that was sacrificed in the cross of Calvary and the body that now represents Him through which His life is lived which is the church the body of Christ we are going to focus on the first dimension of that that physical body that Christ took upon Himself, God the Son, leaving all of the glories of heaven to identify with us, to live in His flesh, a sinless life, so that when He went to the cross, there was no sin in Him for which He needed to die. And the Father could make Him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him so that our sin was carried by Christ and His righteousness was imputed to us by a judicial declaration of the Father. And all of that transpired the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Not prayed a prayer. Not walked an aisle. But believed in your heart that Christ has died for your sins and that God the Father raised Him from the dead. And you're trusting in Him and Him alone. When can a person be saved? And I use the word saved because it's an appropriate word. It means we've been rescued. When can a person be born again? That's an appropriate phrase because we're born once and we have physical life for a time, but then when we're born again, we have a spiritual life that comes into us that now gives us a quality of life that represents the person of Christ today and guarantees our presence with the Father for all eternity. When can you do that? Now. Right now. I am a sinner, and I believe that Jesus died for my sins. And by faith, I accept that sacrifice that He made for me. And I trust Him and Him alone. The Bible says if you believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be saved. You will be saved. Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. A lot of you have come to the Lord, haven't you? Um, Let's do something a little differently. Oh, the elders are worried. What's he going to do now? I think this would be a neat thing to do. 235 years ago, a bunch of names not all in the same day, we know that, were inscribed on a declaration of independence that said, we are now free from our, if I can use the word bondage, to the United Kingdom, to England. We declare our freedom. We declare on this fourth day of July, 1776, that we are free. There is another declaration of independence that is also signed. It has been written in the blood of Christ. And it is signed by those who by faith have trusted him as Savior. This declaration is different from the American declaration in that once the signatures came down, the freedom had to be fought for. The other declaration, the freedom's already been purchased. The battle's over. There's no more war. There are battles that we go through, but the war has been won. And now there are millions of names that are attached to that declaration of independence. And there is no July 4th 1776. But there is behind each name a time when this person embraced the freedom from the bondage of sin that Jesus Christ brought them the moment they trusted Christ as Savior. I want to hear as you stand one at a time what date goes behind your name. Now here's the deal. Some of you don't know the date, but you know you trusted Christ. You might know the year. You might know the month. It might be, I can tell you my age, and then I can figure out what year that would be, but I can't tell you the date. I just remember rolling out of bed and recognizing what a terrible sinner I was and what a great Savior Jesus was and is. And in my heart, believing that he took my sin upon himself and he rose from the dead. And I told him that. That's where prayer came in. I told him that, but I already believed it. I wasn't praying anything I hadn't believed. I believed it, so I was saved. Then I prayed it. So let's keep that straight. Tell me the date if you know. Just one by one, stand up. Just, just the date. You don't have to tell me anything else. What day was your Declaration of Independence signed? Pardon me? Do you know the year? March twenty seventh, two thousand and five. Wow. Nineteen fifty six. Wonderful. Thank the Lord. June nineteen sixty six. Nineteen sixty six. Wow. 2001. Wow. 1996. 1996. You're just a kid. (laughs) 1999. 1999. You're even more of a kid. 87. Wow. 1980. 1980. I was two. <laughs> I, I didn't even know who, anything about the Lord. Well, yeah, I probably did. My parents saw it to it that I did. That's wonderful. Great. May eighty-one. Nineteen eighty-one. nineteen fifty-one. Nineteen fifty-one. Another fifty-one. December nineteen eighty-four. Nineteen eighty-four in Farmington Hills, Michigan. Taylor, Michigan. Oh boy. Alright. Hang on. February February 22nd? No, year 22. (laughs) (laughs) February of 1922. I wasn't even a gleam in my father's eye. March 8th, 1992. The summer of 1968. 1979. Of... 2005 December of 2007 December of 2007 May of this year May of this year January 1864 1964, 1964. 1964 sir 1973 1973? wonderful October 1960. 1960. 1961 51 same year as your bride 1970 wow is the Lord at work over the years isn't that wonderful yeah 1954 1954. 83 1988. 1988 1955, September of 78, listen, I, I love to hear these dates, what's more important is your own personal testimony, like Paul said, here's what happened, do I need a class to tell somebody that, no, I just tell the truth. Here's what Jesus did for me. And I know many, many others of you could share the date. I am hoping that everybody in here could tell us when you came to Christ. Well, I just kind of grew in my understanding. I guess I, I can't pass judgment on that. But I really believe this, that the Bible teaches that there's a time when you said, yes, that's what I believe. And so I, you know, I, I'm not here to condemn, I'm not here to judge, but I am here to try to tell you what the Bible indicates, and that when you are born, you know, when you were born. And when you're born again, you don't evolve into that, you decide it. I trusted Jesus. Al, we should have a prize for you. Anybody accept Christ before 1922? How many? How? What? What's that? Let it go. Were any of you born before 1922? I'm like, oh. We've got a few. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And Neil, from our perspective, I hope you are not the most recent. I hope the most recent would be able to say July 3rd, 2011. That's when I trusted Jesus. So what we're going to do now is we're going to remember Jesus. We're going to remember him. We're going to give thanks for the bread that represents the body that was hung on the cross for us. We're going to give thanks for the cup that represents the blood of Jesus Christ and the good news. The blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses from all sin. Even the ones you're going to commit tomorrow. They've already been cared for. You say, well, it doesn't seem right. That's only if you don't know how great a Savior we have. <laughs> but my sin is so great. Yeah, but I know a greater Savior. He is greater than any sin you have ever or will ever commit. And so we do this in remembrance of Him. If you're there and you're saying, you know what, I just don't feel like making that decision, I would ask you, just pass the elements. Nobody's looking around. We're, we're focused on ourselves because the rest of us, now we have to evaluate ourselves. Let a man examine himself. And if there is sin in our lives, that sin needs to be dealt with. And if it's not dealt with, then the Lord has to spank us until we do, as a loving Father does. So, gentlemen, would you stand? And let's give thanks for the bread that represents the body of our Savior. Father, how thankful we are that the eternal Son took upon Himself human flesh, suffered the things that we suffered, was tempted in all points as we are, and yet without sin. He is a Savior that gave Himself freely to die on the cross, to allow His body to suffer all the afflictions that an unbelieving world could pour out upon Him But most of all, when our sin was placed upon him, he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And at that moment, our sins were paid for. And then he died. But he rose from the dead. And we know that he is alive forevermore. Thank you. Amen.